This is Jamda on the go, your review of the content featured in Jamda, the research-focused monthly journal of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Statements made by guests on this podcast are their own opinions and are not necessarily the positions of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for a BPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now here's our host for Jamda on the Go, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Hello, and welcome to Jamda on the Go for February 2024. I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg, your host for this podcast, on which we discuss articles of interest from the current issue of Jamda, the Journal of Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, also officially still called the Journal of the American Medical Directors Association. Listeners, I'll have to beg your indulgence today because I turned up positive for COVID yesterday and my throat and voice are not quite what they usually are, so please forgive the tone. Anyway, today it's my pleasure to welcome Barbara Resnick, PhD, CRNP, one of our co-editors-in-chief of JAMDA, and Victoria Shire, PhD, MPA, the author of one of the articles we'll be discussing today. In addition to our interview with Dr. Shire about her contribution, your editors have chosen three other articles we'll be highlighting from the February issue that we think will be of particular interest to our audience. These topics include a paper about the impact of telemedicine on transfers to the emergency room, a paper focusing on defining, testing, and validating quality measures to pragmatically measure the practice-based quality of medical providers, in a pilot study, and finally, a paper testing the effectiveness of an, of an exercise program to reduce falls in older adults living in long-term care communities. So, Barbara Resnick, PhD, CRNP, is a professor in the Department of Organizational Systems and Adult Health at the University of Maryland School of Nursing. She's the Associate Dean of Research and holds the Gershowitz Chair in Gerontology. In addition to teaching advanced practice nurses, Barb also does research in all settings of care, addressing optimizing function and physical well-being among older adults, symptom management, and engaging older adults in healthy behaviors, and has over 40 years of clinical practice, which is currently based in assisted living, home care, and senior housing communities. And it's an honor today to start our discussion with Victoria Shire, PhD, MPA. Vicki is a research scientist at the Leonard D. Schaefer Center for Health Policy and Economics and Saul Price School of Public Policy at the University of Southern California. Dr. Shire leads the quantitative analysis of the comparative effectiveness of a PCORI-funded study that compares two non-pharmacological approaches for dementia care in nursing homes. Dr. Shire is currently the principal investigator for an NIA-funded study that examines the effect of Medicare Advantage on healthcare use and outcomes among beneficiaries with dementia. In prior work to standardize assessments across post-acute care settings to meet the requirements of the improving Medicare post-acute transitions, sorry, improving Medicare post-acute care transformation act, the impact act, let's just say that of 2014, Dr. Shire co-led the development of assessments within two clinical domains, participated in technical expert panels, and contributed to analysis of results, including authoring two manuscripts focused on cognitive assessment of patients. Dr. Shire received her PhD in policy analysis 
from the Pardee Rand Graduate School in Santa Monica, California. So welcome, Drs. Resnick and Shire. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks. Thanks, Carl, and thanks for leading us along. Well, uh, all right. And hopefully, uh, hopefully my voice isn't bothering other people as much as it bothers me. I feel not that bad. So uh, anyway. Uh, all right. So, Vicki, your paper we're discussing is titled The Impact of State Dementia Training Requirements for Nursing Homes on Antipsychotic Medication Use. And obviously, antipsychotic medication in nursing homes is a topic of great interest uh, uh, and something that I think we could always do better on. So, Dr. Shire, can you start by telling us a bit about yourself and your team? Sure. Um well, I think you did a nice introduction already, but I'm Vicki Shire, and I'm a researcher at USC, and I've been researching issues related to quality of care in nursing homes for over 15 years. And the study team for this paper is actually part of a larger team working on a pragmatic randomized trial in nursing homes, which includes both academic researchers and community partners from the nursing home community. And the individuals on this paper kind of reflect a unique mix of different research backgrounds, including um, health economics and health services research, um, but also clinical expertise in pharmacy and occupational therapy and nursing home care. And then I also just wanted to note that the current paper that we're going to discuss and also this larger study, we also were guided significantly by the input of an advisory committee that was made up of diverse perspectives of the nursing home community including patient advocates, family caregivers, frontline staff, and system leadership. That's fantastic to hear. I mean, it's so important to, to include all of those voices uh, when you're trying to figure out that, what to do to, to research and to make things better. So thank you. So it might be an obvious question, but what was your impetus for exploring this issue? Um, I think we had first, like from a policy perspective, the rationale for focusing on antipsychotic medication use in nursing home residents um, kind of has like a long history. Um, and it's an issue that impacts all residents with dementia and everyone with a loved home in a nursing home and also all the nursing home staff who are caring for them. About half of long stay nursing home residents have dementia. And as Every, most know the residents experience severe cognitive and functional impairments. And as a result of those impairments, caring for residents with dementia and the related behavioral symptoms can be particularly challenging for the nursing home staff. So, oh, um, over 20 years ago, it really became prevalent for nursing homes to manage the dementia-related behaviors using off um, label use of antipsychotic medications. And by 2011, more than 30% of nursing home residents with dementia were, were taking antipsychotic medications. And then evidence showed that the antipsychotic medication use was also associated with increased risk of stroke and other conditions, and also had a negative impact on residents' quality of life, um, particularly through kind of inducing withdrawal among residents. So kind of given all these negative outcomes, um, families and caregivers and other dementia advocates started to promote the reduction of antipsychotic medication use. 
and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services ended up implementing several national initiatives starting in um, 2012 to focus on non-pharmacological interventions for dementia care rather than antipsychotic medication use. And then specifically for our study, um, the larger study that I mentioned earlier that involved interventions that provided facility-wide training for staff on dementia care, which was a priority identified by our community partners. So as we planned for the nursing home recruitment, after we were funded for that larger study, we found that across states, there was actually significant variation in the reg regulations that required dementia-specific training for staff. And those requirements really varied widely across states, where some states had no requirements at all, and others required many hours of training each year. And we also saw that different states implemented the requirements at different times. So we really wanted to examine whether the implementation of training requirements at that state level were effective in reducing unnecessary antipsychotic medication use in nursing homes. Wow. Yeah, great. Well, that uh, seems like a, a really good idea. And I'm sure many of our listeners uh, both remember what things were like before the efforts to reduce unnecessary antipsychotic use uh, in nursing homes, and also are well aware of the challenges of uh, caring for this uh, this resident mm -hmm. population and the, the negative uh, effects of antipsychotic medications um, you know, a couple of which you mentioned, and there are certainly others. So did you encounter any challenges in conducting this study? Um, well, since we used publicly available nursing home data from 2011 to 2019 in our analysis, and we did not have to conduct any primary data collection on outcomes where you often have to deal with um, like challenges related to recruitment or participant retention, I think... Uh, our main challenge was really identifying and then categorizing all the state regulations and statutes for nursing home dementia training. And basically to do this, we kind of did detailed searches of state regulations and then kind of triangulated that with some existing reports on some requirements. That sounds like pretty painstaking work, but thank you for doing it. So, uh, so bottom line, what were your findings and what are your take home messages? I think bottom line, we found that there was the small but significant benefit. We we found that the state mandated um, dementia training for nursing home staff is associated with a small but statistically significant reduction in antipsychotic medication use. And kind of the takeaways is that this effect was on top of the significant reduction in antipsychotic medication use among nursing homes nationally that have been following the CMS's national initiatives. And I think these findings kind of have implications for the policymakers involved in shaping dementia care standards. Um, it kind of shows that the state requirements and policies can serve as a valuable tool for promoting quality of care, and that there's kind of this role for the national level, the state level, and the nursing home levels to all support quality improvement in nursing homes. Yeah, well, it's, um, I, I mean, it's intuitive to think that having additional training about caring for residents with dementia might result in, um, you know, less of an urgent call to get the doctor to prescribe something. Uh, mm -hmm. So that does make sense. Um, let me ask you this, did you find any 
specific states where there was a more robust reduction and and how that correlated to what the actual training was or did you were you able to get into that level of uh, detail um we were able to get into that level of detail a little bit in that um we found that more stringent training requirements so if the policy for example um specify the number of training hours that there should be that was associated with a greater reduction in antipsychotic medication use we also found when we looked at whether kind of using the number of hours as um looking at the effects um there was kind of like a increase in the reduction as the hours increased uh, that that also seems fairly intuitive so that's uh, really good to know stuff and um it sounds like one thing that uh, you might recommend would be to have CMS consider uh, mandating some uh, uh, some level of dementia training for direct caregivers in nursing homes. But um, are there other ways that you think your findings uh, might impact clinical practice or policy? Yeah, I think I think the results do highlight the importance of nursing homes implementing potentially a comprehensive and well-defined uh, training programs to improve quality of care. And then I think also there are always new drugs that are constantly being developed. And actually the FDA recently approved a new drug to treat aggression among individuals with dementia. So I, I think nursing homes will have to continue to balance the use of non-pharmacological approaches with any new potential use of drugs that continue to come out. Um, and that will, you know, that balance will need to be further considered as new drugs are approved. Right, right, sure. And I mean, just because something has an FDA approval doesn't mean it doesn't still carry a, you know, a boxed warning and uh, all right. of the other, I mean, it's still a, a, a an atypical or, or, you know, it's an antipsychotic, uh, whether it's approved or not um but i guess also facilities could whether or not it's state mandated i know most nursing homes have some amount of in services every year about dementia and uh, you know they could certainly uh take these findings to suggest that more hours on that might uh, uh might improve care that much more mm -hmm. so um barb do you have any questions or uh comments about this study yeah, so thank you so much for this work. It's certainly timely. Um, I, I think to me, the real interest was around the whole area of whether or not policy changes behavior and whether or not education changes behavior. And in fact, while you saw a small but significant benefit, you know, I, I still do question and hope your you and your team will do a bit of a deeper dive because I, I still do question whether it wasn't other things. A state that's got more regulations, you know, was there more emphasis during surveys to look at this and um, other associated things. Um, as someone who has done study implementations, getting long-term care staff to use uh, non-pharmacological interventions, it's really hard. And it's really Man. hard to yeah. change the behavior 
around use of drugs, but also use of non-pharmacological approaches and the small changes we can make there and what we may need to just accept in terms of behavior. Um, the other thing I wanted to remind everybody, and hit me, this is so timely, um, and as many of you out there listening hopefully are aware, we lost recently a leader in AMDAS, Dr. Steve Levinson, um, died, unfortunately, um, quite recently. And I just want to highlight that we published in JAMDA starting in January, February, and there will be the third one in March, editorials about the history of antipsychotic use and in long-term care, obviously, the history, the policies, and where we need to go next. So I really do encourage everybody to look at that. And um, thank you, thank you so much for this work and highlighting it again. And hopefully you guys will continue and dive deeper is all I can say. Yeah, Barb, thanks for bringing up about Steve Levinson. I, I know many of our listeners knew Steve. Uh, he was an amazing asset to to AMDA and uh, just did so much uh, for so many years, and he will be missed. Um, so, Vicki, uh, are you planning on doing a follow-up? Uh, what do you suggest as any next steps for, for you or other researchers to, to look at in this arena? Um, I think, well, one main next step, I, I think, is that, um, well, with the the exception of specifying the number of training hours for the training topics, most of the state regulations that we looked at did not provide nursing homes with the guidance on how to train the staff or um, how best to train staff on care for, uh, for residents with dementia. So I think one step is kind of providing that link to nursing homes. For example, what components should be included, who should be trained, how should the training be conducted, and what are the most effective approaches to dementia care in nursing homes? And then also defining those components will be particularly important if the scope of who is trained is expanded to uh, all nursing home staff, given kind of the diverse education background of staff in nursing homes. Well, that's great. Yeah. And I, I mean, I know CMS is promulgated some like bathing without a battle and, and there's so many good tools, um, but uh uh, you know, a particular facility might not know what the best tools are. So to the extent that, you know, we who work in this arena can help uh, get those out there, uh, that I think would really be helpful. So that's been some great discussion and perspective. Dr. Shire, many thanks for taking the time to chat with us today on Jam Down on the Go. This episode will return after this special message. Join your professional community at PLTC 24. Embark on a memorable journey in San Antonio, Texas, where you'll have the opportunity to fully engage in a dynamic program offering valuable sessions, stimulating discussions, and numerous networking opportunities. While you're in San Antonio, immerse yourself in the city's rich heritage by exploring iconic sites like the Alamo and indulge your taste buds in the vibrant Tex-Mex culinary scene. Experience the enchanting Riverwalk, where lively restaurants and shops line the scenic waterways. For those who can join us in San Antonio, we are offering a virtual learning track which will provide you with access to the live stream general sessions, 
nine live stream sessions, and all concurrent session recordings through March 31, 2024. Visit PILTC.org to learn more and register. And now back to our program. So our second paper for review focused on the use of telemedicine in nursing home residents requiring a call to an emergency medical communication center by first author Nicholas Marjanovich, MD, PhD, from the University Hospital of Poitiers in Poitiers, France. This study compared the proportion of nursing home residents dispatched to an ED after a call to the emergency medical communication center according to whether or not there was availability of a telemedicine visit or not. This was a prospective observational trial that included 74 nursing homes in a French county. All nursing home residents who needed to contact the EMCC between June of 2019 and April of 20 were included in the study. The primary outcome was the proportion of residents dispatched to an ED after their first call to the EMCC. Secondary outcomes were the proportion of second calls proportion of residents dispatched to an ED after a second call, and proportion of death within 30 days. Overall, a total of about 3,100 calls were evaluated, about 350 of which were from equipped nursing homes, and about 2,700 of which uh, were from unequipped nursing homes. Now, the proportion of patients dispatched to an ED after the first call was statistically significantly lower among telemedicine equipped than among telemedicine unequipped nursing homes. So that was 41% versus 50% with an odds ratio of about 0.7. So the proportion of a second call for the same purpose within 72 hours, proportion of residents dispatched to an ED after the second call, and proportion of deaths within 30 days were all similar between the groups. So there were no, no significant uh, variations there. The authors concluded that use of telemedicine by nursing home residents requiring a call uh, to this emergency communication center is associated with a reduction in the number of dispatches to an ED without any increase in the number of 20 of uh, 72 hour callbacks or 30 day mortality. And again, this uh, probably shouldn't surprise anybody if you've got the ability to do uh, a telemedicine assessment uh, that might prevent an unnecessary trip to the hospital. Um, I'm a big proponent of having a geriatrician and not an emergency physician do these. Uh, some might remember the uh, the old talk nine uh, uh, idea that was being floated, but uh, but anyway, uh, having any type of medical assessment, um, whether that's uh, uh, whatever the specialty, obviously can help prevent an unnecessary transfer to the emergency department, which obviously carries its own set of uh, uh, of risks and burdens for the patient. Um, so, Barb, uh, what are your comments on this one? Yeah, I, I think the strength of this study and the reason why I liked it was that it does provide the support, albeit small, uh, in the benefit of having access to telehealth. And uh, it's a no-brainer, as you said, that from a practical perspective, it makes great sense. There's a lot of challenges at times getting to communities, whether you're in a rural area, could be weather issues, infectious disease issues, or just plain old staffing issues and having the human body to get out there that can be some level of assessment. And uh, we, we need this kind of documentation 
so that services can continue to be acknowledged and covered. Because that's truthfully what I fear. We we do have more and more opportunities for this now, but we have to continue to support the value. So I think this provides a, a little bit of that. And we probably need to continue to look at devil in the details, how we can do this well. Yes, agreed. We don't want to be overly reliant on it, but we certainly don't want to create roadblocks. And, you know, with our move in this country toward more value-based payments, um, you know, whether or not something might be covered under a Medicare fee-for-service type situation, um, at-risk groups uh, or entities or insurers uh, can certainly make a decision to um, cover telemedicine visits, whether or not it's going to be something that uh, that they can bill Medicare for specifically. So, all right, the next paper for review is entitled Focusing on Provider Quality Measurement, Continued Consensus and Feasibility Testing of Practice-Based Quality Measures for Primary Care Providers in Long-Term Care. Wow, that's a long title. How did you fit that all in one page? Uh, this is by Andrew Costa, PhD from McMaster University in Canada. Uh, and this was intended to define, test, and validate quality measures to pragmatically measure the practice-based quality of long-term care medical providers. And uh, I think some of us who work as chief medical officers or medical directors have ideas about how to sort of monitor the quality of care that other clinicians are providing. Um, but in any event, this team included seven North American long-term care homes with data from practicing medical providers for long-term care residents. A four-phase approach was done with phase one focused on having experts rate 95 quality measures using five pragmatic focused criteria in a RAND modified Delphi process. The second phase involved specifying 37 quality measures for collection uh, of which four were dropped uh, during pilot testing. Phase three involved a retrospective chart review in seven long-term care homes on the remaining 33 quality measures with trained data abstractors. And finally, in phase four, results and psychometric properties were reviewed by an expert panel. The panel ranked the tested measures for validity and feasibility for use by a non-physician auditor to evaluate medical provider performance based on their medical record review. So in total, the authors examined data from 343 resident charts from these seven long-term care homes uh, involving 49 providers. This process yielded 10 quality measures that were feasible to collect and that had good test performance where, uh, well, these were uh, the primary provider noticed dementia, the dementia prognosis and symptoms were recorded, uh, the clinician performed a falls history. Fall examination was documented. Pain assessment was completed. Efficacy and side effects of opioids were assessed. ED and hospital outcomes were recorded. Uh, vision, hearing, and dentition assessed. Assessment within seven days. History and physical within 14 days. And discussion of goals of care. Those were the ones they looked at. Uh, and this team recommended that future work perform broader testing and uh, further validate and refine these operationalized quality measures. So, Barb, what do you think of this one? So, I, I personally think this group did a great job of identifying some of the most critical quality measures to focus on. 
and we we all know that's important so we get rid of the other stuff a lot of this is really focused on assessment diagnosis and planning of care which is so needed and often lacking and again a tribute to the late steve levinson who pushed that point incessantly hopefully ongoing work will continue to look at the black box of medical care as well as the impact of other members of the team again we all know long-term care is very much a team sport and everybody we we need the input from everybody it may be a nurse or an advanced practice nurse who assesses for falls or pain, but the primary care provider can help to follow up with that, address it, and um, take it to the next step in terms of diagnosis and management. And that's the kind of care we really want to see. Yeah. Yeah. And, and one nice thing about this is that it doesn't require a physician to do a review to see if these metrics uh are being met and so uh that might make it a little bit easier and less expensive uh to initiate these types of uh monitoring programs in our facilities so our last paper for review today tested the effects of an exercise program to reduce falls in older people living in long-term care a randomized controlled trial and this was by lynn m taylor phd from the University of Auckland Faculty of Medical and Health Sciences in Auckland, New Zealand. The purpose of this study was to investigate the effect of an exercise program on falls in intermediate and high-level long-term care residents and to determine whether adherence, physical capacity, and cognition modified outcomes. Falls, I assume. Uh, so this was a randomized controlled trial that included 520 residents aged 84 plus or minus eight years from 25 long-term care facilities in New Zealand. And these participants were randomized to a program called Staying Upright, which was a physical therapist-led balance and strength group exercise program delivered for one hour, twice weekly over 12 months. The control arm was dose-matched and used seated activities with no resistance. Falls data were collected using routinely collected incident reports. And the results here showed that the baseline fall rates were 4.1 and 3.3 falls per person year for intervention and control groups. So uh, a little bit different uh, right to begin with. Over the 12-month trial period, 74% fell, with 63% of the intervention group and 61% of the control group falling more than once. <laughs> oh, uh, lots of falls. Uh, risk of falls and repeat falling or fallers sustaining an injury at trial completion were similar between the two groups. Fall rates per 100 hours walked also didn't differ between groups. Unfortunately, program delivery was suspended several times because of COVID-19, which reduced the average attendance to just 26 hours over 12 months. Some group analyses of falls outcomes for those with the highest attendance, uh, which was greater than 50% of the classes, better physical capacity, SPPB scores of greater than or equal to 8 out of 12, and cognition with a MOCA score greater than or equal to 18 out of 30 also showed no significant impact of the program. So, unfortunately, the authors concluded that in intermediate and high-level care residents, the Staying Upright program did not reduce fall rates or risk compared with the control activity independent of age, sex, or care level 
It's possible uh, inadequate exercise dose because of COVID-19 related interruptions to the intervention delivery may have contributed to this null result, but uh, a little bit disappointing and and counterintuitive. But uh, Barb, uh, your comments on this one and why'd you pick it? So investigators always feel that things won't get published unless there's some fantastic outcome. So I'm here to tell you from JAMDA, I think it's very important to publish things that show no outcome so the rest of us don't keep doing the things that have no impact. And this, you can imagine the level of resources for a study like this. Sometimes it's really just learning and knowing what doesn't help. Um, This study is also a good reminder of the importance of addressing treatment fidelity. They did a very nice job and addressed and acknowledged that even when they looked at things like whether or not the intervention was implemented as intended, they looked at dose effect. um, And they didn't really address receipt, which we would like to see because it's also possible and we know this happens with many of our um, older participants, we may recommend and try and work with them on a certain exercise program, but they can't or won't do it. And this is a a big issue and truthfully an issue I I debate within my exercise physiology uh, uh, colleagues because they can't always understand that the person just humanly can't do this. So we need to do certain things to be able to really get the benefit. We also already have many studies that show the benefits of physical activity, no no matter what their current status. Again, it's making that physical activity happen. And uh, maybe this intervention could be studied again in a non-COVID restricted world. To, ter- to determine really can and if the residents will do this activity. The other thing that happens with these types of projects is once the study's done, so is the exercise. And so in many ways, it is something we need to get away with it and get away from. Um, that being said, it's really helpful to see that they tried to implement something what where some of the issues were and that this may not be the best way to go so onward to fewer future research right right well it's hard to imagine that you know uh uh you know strength and balance uh, actual ambulation program compared to a seated program wouldn't help more but uh yeah anyway uh i I appreciate that this particular intervention uh, did not have a robust uh you know or statistically significant response that doesn't mean we shouldn't keep trying to get our people up i was also that's a pretty high number of falls right uh and uh i I like to hope that you know 64 percent of my patients don't fall in a year but uh anyway um well, great. So that's going to wrap it up for this Jamda On The Go podcast. Thanks again to our guest presenter, Dr. Vicki Spire, for a great discussion. And uh, to you, Barb, of course. Thanks, as always, to our editors, associate editors, contributors, and staff from Elsevier, whose efforts continue to generate one great Jamda volume after another. So please take a look at our February 2024 issue. References for this podcast can be found at www.jamda.com. That's 
J-A-M-D-A. Until next month, this is Dr. Carl Steinberg signing off for Jamda on the Go. If you are a physician and interested in obtaining a BPLM, pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, visit PALTC.org slash podcast. Thank you.